congregation. And uh, Mark has um, always been a great uh, help. And, and part of this, and for those of you who don't know, some of you do, but um, Mark and I go way back. We actually met in prison, right? We did. That's not, a, that's not fake news. That is not fake news. No, I asked him to shank a guy for a pack of smokes, and he did. And um, we were... Friends we just had like a, we had like kind of a two man gang. We were, we were pretty tough, but um, it was prison ministry, right? But um, and that's why I love Mark being up here with me doing this because we used to go in, right, Mark? It'd be like sometimes two or two and a half hours of Q and A day, and we would answer a lot of these types of questions. Um, but um, not only do we have Mark helping us out, but this is um, the first day. I have an exciting new chapter in the life of Harvest Bible Chapel, and I would like you to give a very warm Harvest welcome to Pastor Taylor Brown as he makes his way up. Why don't you guys go ahead and have a seat? Um, I got to tell you, though, I was a little—I was a little dismayed because I've been telling people. Oh, I've been, I've been telling people that, uh, hey, I'm really excited, you know, through this process. I said, um, we're getting a new pastor. And people have been like, yes, we're getting a new pastor. And I'm like, I'm another pastor. And they're like, oh, oh I, I, that's cool too, I guess. But before we get to the congregation submitted questions, I thought this would be a great opportunity to ask Taylor some questions. So anybody have any questions for Taylor? Here's a couple. Um, we're not going to embarrass anybody or make them stand up or you know parade through. But Taylor, why don't you just sort of introduce yourself and tell us um, about your family? So my wife and I, Kate, we've been married for almost eight years now. We have two kids. Sam is two and a half years old. Thankfully, his number hasn't been called yet, so that's pretty good. <laughs> and we also have Emmy, my daughter, who's the best friend any of you will ever have. She'll love every single person in this room. Uh, we're really excited to be here. Well, we are so excited to have you here. And for those of you, which is a couple of us, very few of us, that go back quite a ways, Taylor actually interned with us back in 2012, right? And uh, what have you been doing since then? Over the past seven and a half years, I've been a youth pastor at North Park Church in Wexford, which Jeff told me he's the reason I have that job. I guess he's the reason I have this job, so thank you for my entire career, I guess. You're welcome. <laughs> he You're said welcome. his review was so glowing that they had to hire me. And that had to be the case because I had no experience yet. So. Yeah, well, they called me about the reference, and let's just say I can be persuasive. <laughs> I, said, I, I said something along the lines of, um, if you don't hire this man, you are greatly dishonoring the Lord, biggest mistake you'll ever make in the history of your life, something like that. I don't remember exactly, but, um, but yeah, you, you, got, you got a glowing recommendation from me. So, And it was also um, very weird that when... Um, he put his application here in the church. My name was on the list of references. So He told me not to take him off, so I did. I said, should I take your name off since I'm giving you the application? He said, nah, don't worry about yeah, it. Yeah, I, I called the church line for my cell phone so I could ask myself about you. So um, what, um, why, why in the world would you accept a position to serve as pastor in this church? What was it that was a draw for you? What are you excited about in serving in this capacity um, with who I believe is the greatest group of people in Pittsburgh. Well, I mean, I've been a part of this church you know, since the beginning almost. I was an intern back in 2012 to 2013. And Jeff gave me a chance when I was really burned out on wanting to do ministry. 
I had a really bad experience at a church I was interning at. And I was like, you know what, God, I just want to give up. I don't know if this is for me. And then we had a family friend connect me with Jeff, and we met up at Double Wide Grill, which doesn't exist anymore, does it? No, I, I, that's, uh, somebody called that building the place restaurants go to die. We uh, shared a meal over some greasy lug nuts they were called. Yeah, yeah. And we had a great conversation for about two hours, and we just feel like, I don't know, we were just like, you ever, that, you ever had those people you meet? You're like, I feel like we've been friends my entire life. I've only known you for a couple of minutes. And Jeff said, yeah, you should be an intern. We'll give you opportunities to preach. So I'm like, whoa, whoa, I just met you, and you're giving me opportunities to preach. It was just a, such a God-ordained meeting. And I've always had harvest on my heart, even though I haven't been here for over 10 years. I've still come back to preach. I don't know, how many times has it been? You looked it up? I was told 12. 12 times? Okay. So this congregation's always been on my heart. I've been helping with the preaching class every year, so I'm still somewhat connected. And I just love everybody I know here. I'm excited to get to know everybody else that I don't know. Yeah, that's, and that was one of the things from our initial meeting that, um, I don't know, maybe, I guess being in pastoral ministry, you get a sense of people because you're around people and you counsel people and, and um, you get to, get to know a lot of people. But um, with Taylor, just immediately I, I sensed just a, a sincerity about him. You know, um, I've met a lot of people in ministry. Can I, can I just be honest with you? Is this a safe space? I met a lot of people in ministry that I just got the impression were phony. And they were saying the things that they thought a pastor was supposed to say or whatever. And I didn't ever get that from Taylor. Just from the first conversation we had, there was just a sincerity about him. He loves the Lord. He loves God's Word. He loves his family. And um, that, I think that was one of the reasons we just kind of connected. I think we're both just like no pretense just tell me how it is and, you know, that kind of thing. So um, I, I am just so excited to finally, we talked about hiring an associate back um, pre-COVID. Back, remember, Mark, back in like December of 2019, we were having this conversation. And then COVID and all that crazy stuff happened. And, you know, now um, we kind of hesitated again because of monkeypox. But we're like, you know what? We're going to go for it. I wonder what's next. <laughs> um, the return of our Lord, I think, that is what's next. <laughs> I, that, that's the next thing that I'm looking forward to, is the return of uh, the, the glorious revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, um, if I could just jump in for a split second. On behalf of the elder board, um, we, we are super excited uh, for uh, Taylor and Kate and the family uh, to be a part of our church. Uh, he certainly has a... a, a a, a nice resume and uh, and all that stuff, but it's the character uh, of of this man, and so I'm I'm super excited um, because you know there there's certain milestones along the way in the life of a church that we hit, and if you, if some of you guys when we moved into this building, remember that it was a big milestone for our church, and this is one of those times um, now with adding uh, Taylor on. Um, it's a huge milestone. I'm not putting any pressure on you at all, but this is this is huge for, for our church. It's going to yeah. be great. Yeah, no pressure at all. But we thought, what a great place to make his debut. Q&A day, right? No pressure. No pressure. No pressure at all. So um, let's go over the ground rules here, Mark, for the people that are new. With Q&A day, we, at, we answer the question that we... Think they're, think they're asking. asking. We, I, I will read the question as it was submitted, and Jeff will answer it 
um, the, the way he, that we think that you're asking it. Right. So uh, we're throwing that out there in case there's somebody that like, well, that's my question, but that's not what I meant. Eh, well, we're going to answer it the best way we understand the question to be asked. What's the next rule? Um, oh, yeah, we're going to give the short answer because, honestly, some of these questions could have been a sermon series. So we're going to give, um, and they're excellent questions, but we you are um, known for brevity, too. What's, what's that? You are known for brevity. I'm known for brevity, right. I, that's what that's what they say about me around here. Please, please, longer sermons, Pastor. John. When I left, your sermons are fifty-five minutes, well, and they're shorter than that now, though. Well, so back good. then, I was getting paid by the word, um, and I didn't print out my answers, so I have them on my phone here somewhere. Um, are there any other rules? It's like don't feed them after midnight. Don't get them. Okay, I will blog on our website. Oh, yeah, that's right. Taylor will blog on our website the questions that we don't cover. Between Taylor and I, we'll make sure that that gets covered, right? So the short answers. All right, so oh, we got to set the timer. How much time do we want? What are we, 40 An minutes? An hour. From a group that was just complaining about the length of my sermons. <laughs> You're getting five minutes. Um, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. What, how long do we want? We usually go about 40 minutes. You want to say 40 any objections? All in favor? We don't vote here. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. I, I, uh, uh, yes, I don't work the whole hour, darling. I only work about 55 minutes, apparently. All right, we're going to do 40 minutes, but I'm not starting the timer until Mark reads the first question. All like right, a game show. You guys ready? All right, buckle up. Here we go. we got a lot of questions. Um, my question is how, as followers of Christ, are we to equip ourselves and our children, besides prayer, to stand up against evil ideology, but particularly LGBTQ agenda in our schools and the in-your-face push throughout media? How do we teach our kids to respond to teachers and peers when confronted with these movements? You know, that, that is a really good question. It's really relevant for our time. So, Taylor... I appreciate the first softball question of the whole group. Yeah, definitely the easiest question out of all. Just thought we'd start out with an easy one. I appreciate that. Well, this is something that we're all connected to in some way. We all have someone in our lives who identifies as LGBTQ. Maybe it's a relative. Maybe it's a friend, coworker, coworker neighbor. Yep. So this affects every single one of us. And we're at the stage in our culture where it's everywhere. I mean, an episode of Blues Clues, episode of Blues Clues had a drag queen on it. The newest Buzz Lightyear movie has a lesbian marriage on display. So you, it's really hard to avoid these things. Right. And I've encountered many parents who want to shield their kids completely from this. And that's not really possible. They're going to learn about this from somewhere. And it should be you. And it should be from the church. That's really, really important. The most important thing you can do with your kids growing up is teaching them who they are. Who they are in Christ. Who God created them to be. Their gender was established by God and God alone. Right. And they can't change that and say, I don't really feel like this. I think sometimes there's the extremes of, oh, well, you can be anything you want to be. And also, oh, a man has to love hunting, has to love trucks, has to, a girl has to love princesses and dresses. No, that's, both those things are unhelpful. As parents, we should model what a godly man looks like and what a godly woman looks like as well. Right. That's really, really important. We also want to make sure our kids aren't just lovers of the truth, but givers of grace as well. The LGBT community isn't our enemy. 
We're trying to love and serve them. So helping our kids understand, we need to show them grace. We need to show them love. Yes, speak the truth, but also show them the love and grace of Jesus Christ. Right, and I think with that, um, I'm sorry, I don't know why it keeps, it must not have it in the right position here. Um, I think we need to teach them very early on, what does the Bible say? Establishing the authority of God's Word. Because that's where we get our answers with all those things you're talking about. Our identity, our mission, you know, uh, issues regarding sexuality. We, we should be, from early on, teaching our kids, look, you know what, God's Word is our authority. And this is where we need to go to when these questions come up. Well, well you know, they were. You know, they, I saw a drag queen on Blue's Clues or whatever. And um, you're like, well, it gives you an opportunity to talk to your you know, teenager, first of all, about what the Bible says about sexuality and also why your teenager shouldn't be watching Blue's Clues. <laughs> and, and Paul says this in uh, 2 Timothy also. Uh, he says, from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And so here we even see it in, in the New Testament where uh, Paul is telling Timothy, hey, you, you learned this stuff when you were a kid. Right. And, and we should be teaching our kids um, not only uh, the biblical, biblical truth, of course, right. but um, critical thinking skills that go along with that. Right. The, the, this isn't just an encyclopedia here. This is something that tells you how, how right. God wants you to live. And so we need to teach them, uh, I think, critical thinking skills and modeling uh, the biblical behavior, and, and our kids will catch that. And, and, and they, will, they will be able to identify that these things, these, these aren't right in God's eyes. Yeah, Cade's brought that stuff home from school where he was going. He goes, Dad, we, did somebody at school said, you know, X, Y, Z. And uh, I just said, well, what does the Bible say about that? What do, what do you think God thinks about that? And it, it lets, lets us go into great discussion. Yeah, that's a great point, Jeff. We, our kids should be asking all the time, well, what does the Bible yeah, say about that? What does the Bible that? say? Not only our kids, we should be asking that question. Right. Yeah. We ready for the second yeah, one? Let's get, yeah, let's go. We yeah, promise let's brevity. Um, why should I pray for this world if the Bible says that the world is going to get worse? Why should I pray for this world if the Bible says that the world is going to get worse? That is a really good question. Taylor. Again, wow. Well, this, the, consider this a uh, consider this part of the job interview. <laughs> Well, in the New Testament, the word cosmos or world can refer to three different things. It can be referring to this physical planet, other human beings, as well as this present evil system that's run by Satan. So God calls us to oppose this present evil system and its ideologies that it teaches that go against God's word. But he also calls us to love and pray for other human beings. He calls us to take care of his creation. So in one way, we're called to hate the world. Another way, we're called to love the world at the same time. Right. And... You know, there's nothing new under the sun, right? We just covered that in Ecclesiastes. But um, the world, how long has it been that the world's been getting worse? Like, since the fall, right? And you see that in every chapter of history. I mean, look at the book of Daniel. You know, Daniel was a man of prayer, and things were getting worse and worse and worse in his day, too. You know, God is still saving people despite how bad the world's getting, right? And we're, you know, we are to pray, you know, for the second coming of Jesus. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we're to pray for God's purposes in evangelism. But God um, uses times like this to glorify Himself through redeeming people. So, um, 
To say, well, the world's getting too bad, it's beyond prayer. Mm, that's, that's not a good place to be. It could always be worse, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You see, like, like a movie like Mad Max Fury Road. It's, okay, it could, it could be worse. It could be like a, like a post-apocalyptic wasteland. Right. So Have you God, read, yeah. God has his restraining hand of common grace on this world, and he can remove it whenever he wants to, but it could be much worse. Right. Have you read Revelation? Like, it is going to get much worse, right? Ready to move on? Yeah. Number three, there, there's a lot of dialogue in our country uh, about rights. What rights are actually given to us by God? Jeff? <laughs> you know, he's a quick learner. I saw where that was going. Hey, you're right, you're right, Taylor. And I think, um, you know, when I, when I saw this question, I thought, I bet you Mark has some great thoughts about that. Mark? Well, you know what? The Bible tells us what kind of rights we have. Right. And, and the first place that I went to was uh, in the book of John. Um, in chapter 1, verse 12, it says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right, right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Right. And, I, you know, we, we do talk about, you know, my rights and standing up for my rights. But biblically, and this, this is what the Bible says, and you're about the Bible, right? Bible's our middle name. We are called slaves of Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to bore you with the whole history lesson behind that. But over time, in order to soften the blow of what the Greek word says, it's been retranslated servant. Because that sounds a little better. Like, you know, I, I serve. I, I serve in the kids' ministry and I serve. But literally, the word in the Greek is, you're a slave of Jesus Christ. So when you talk about, you know, what are my rights? My rights are the same rights that a slave would have. I am a slave, biblically, of Jesus Christ, meaning he establishes my rights. He tells me what I'm allowed to do. He sets my my uh, my values and my standards and my expectations. So as Christians, we should not be people that are constantly, you know, waving our flags and demanding our rights as far as, you know, you this, this I I should get what's coming to me and and you just don't see that biblically. All right. Uh number 4. In light of many current events, shortages, and inflation, I feel the need to hoard food and necessities. Is it wrong to have an excess of these items in stock? Does that show a lack of faith in God's provision? And, you know, does it show lack of faith? That's a hard issue, and I can't answer that. But I can answer regarding the principle of um, foreseeing the possibility of shortage ahead and making provision for that. Does the Bible talk about that at all? Well, yeah. Remember Joseph? Um, what, what, um, I, I don't have my notes up. Was it Genesis 41? Where, what's that? It's okay. It's, it's somewhere around there. You can, it, I think it's somewhere around Genesis 41 where he, um, because the Lord revealed to him that there was going to be uh, upcoming famine, so he planned ahead through st- storing. And also um, Proverbs talks about the ant. And the uh, the diligence of the ant, you know, making sure to do the hard work to store for preparation for the winter. So, lack of faith—that's a hard issue. But the actual act of preparing for possible shortage—I don't see that as simple in and of itself as an act. We do because of all the, you know, you talk about empty store shelves and supply chain and blah blah blah. And we're like, hey, you know what? We have 
we have two kids that um, need us to provide for them. So we've been working on making sure that our family's taken care of. Yeah, Walmart near us has not had peanut butter for like a month, and that's, that's a bummer. That is, yeah, yeah. that's that is a bummer. I love peanut butter. No, yeah. but but seriously, like Jeff, when you started that answer, um, you talked about the attitude, and um, think about this though: if if you if you have extra food on hand, and there is a major event, what kind of witness are you going to be to your neighbors if you're like, "Hey, I have some food for you," you know what I'm saying? Right. Like that, it could be a great witness. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. Even the formula shortage right now, it's a great opportunity to bless moms in that way. Right on. And uh, to bless people with toilet paper comes to that again. <laughs> Hopefully it doesn't. Right. That's right. All right. Uh, number five, what is a woman? Um, I, I am a pastor, not a biologist. No idea. Next. Number six. Now, I, I, I have some answers to that. Do you know? Um, I can make a stab at it. <laughs> yeah, we were preparing for this, and Jeff said, I'm not going to answer it. I said, oh, really? You're joking right now? I'm not going to Okay. Well, I, I studied this out a little bit, and um, <laughs> a little bit. In the book of Genesis, I mean, there there are certain things that the Scripture assumes that you know. And um, we haven't had to ask this question for thousands of years until just recently. Um, but if you if you go into Genesis and, and look at, um, I, I think to define a woman, we have to define what a man is. And if you look in the book of Genesis, uh, when Adam was created out of, what was he created out of? Dust. And um, so God named him Adam, which actually means man. He's the first man. And there, there actually is uh, in, in that word, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so um, you can do a little bit of research on this. Um, the word means red or ruddy, which may have described the soil that he was formed from. Um, you've seen red soil and, and certain different colors of soil. Around here, it's brown. Um, I used to live in a place where it was black. Um, but there are places that have red soil. And maybe, and that could have been the situation, and that's why he named him Adam. But um, here, here's the story about when Adam w- was uh, created. He, when he got up out of the dust, he, he looked, well, I wasn't there, but when he saw the dust and he was named from that, um, he, he's looking at the dust and, he, and you can imagine what he's thinking. Okay, I'm named that, but I'm not that. I, I, was, I was from that, but I'm not that now. I'm, I'm distinct from the dust, if you can picture the scene. Okay, so later on when Eve is created, how, how was Eve created? From Adam's side. And so it says in the scripture that um, she was named woman because she was taken from man. And so her name came about the same way that Adam's name came about. Okay, I'm part of that, but I'm not that. I'm distinct. 
And, and, and that's, what, that's what the word woman means. I, I was part of that, but I'm not that. I'm totally distinct from that. And so Adam recognized that, and Eve recognized that, and all these people, through, like all their descendants, recognized that there was a distinction between them. And the rest of the Bible, it doesn't have to explain what a woman is. And like I said, until recently, we've, we've entered in that right. dis- discussion. I think, of, I think of Taylor talking to some of his friends outside the church later today. Like, how'd your first day go? Well, we spent most of the time talking about what a woman is because somebody from the congregation didn't know. And, and here's the thing about that, Jeff. I think Everybody this question, knows what a woman yeah, is. Yeah, I, I think this question might have been submitted tongue-in-cheek. That's my guess. It's possible, and, um, but people know. And when we hear it on the radio and the podcast and stuff like that, the, the people that are asking the question or the people that can't answer it, the people that can't answer it, they know. They know what it is. All right, let's move on. Speaking of women, what are your thoughts about churches uh, with women pastors? What does the Bible say about this? Um, uh, Paul told Timothy, can we put that verse up there, please? Um, did I include? Yeah, there we go. First Timothy 2 says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, just stop right there. Because I've shared this with so many people when they're like, you've got to understand, Jeff, that the reason Paul said that was because of the culture of the day. And you could understand in the culture that Timothy was in, and it was all about the culture. And look at Paul's reasoning. His reasoning has nothing to do with the culture. And you, look, if you're, if you're pro-woman pastor, whatever, um, you, you at least have to acknowledge Paul's reasoning. His reasoning is theological. Why don't you allow women to have authority over men, Paul? He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So it has something to do with the creation order, and it has something to do with what happened in the fall. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So um, at Harvest Bible Chapel, um, there are women serving in every capacity of ministry except this one, except in a position where she would have authority over a man. And it's not anti-woman, it's not male chauvinist, it's not patriarchal. Listen, my favorite person on the planet is a woman. I know what a woman is, all right? And and there is one in particular that, that I love more than anything else on this planet. So it is not an anti-woman thing, it is a, what does the Bible say? And when I read this, I'm like, okay, God gave a theological reason, and even if I don't fully understand that, He is God, and I am right not. So is it okay if God says some things, and I'm like, well, even if I don't, if, even if I don't grasp that, I'm just, I'm just going to do what He says. Is that okay? I, I think it is. Thanks for that, Jeff. All right, number seven. People at work say Christians can swear. Can they swear to be relevant? <laughs> I've never heard of someone coming to Christ because a Christian swore around them. <laughs> yeah, I, maybe I, that's somebody's testimony, but I've never heard it. I understand that. The, I I understand this question. Somebody's saying, like, you know, my coworkers swear. So if I swear, they're going to be like, oh, you know what? He's cool. I can talk to him. 
and that's going to sort of open the door. And but I, I'm with Taylor. I've never heard of somebody that's like, you know, how did you come to know the Lord? It's like, well, you know what? I had this potty mouth coworker, and uh, you know, once I he let out a string of obscenities, and and once I talked to him about that, I found out he was a Christian, and it was like sackcloth and ashes, baby, like. I, I just I don't see that as I don't see that as a great evangelism tool. But what I do see biblically is uh, an exhortation to do the opposite. Like what did Paul say? Ephesians five is it? Um, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Um, I think the appeal of Christians is not to be just like the world. I think the appeal is that we've been transformed so we are different than the world. I think that's the appeal of evangelism. See, people didn't flock to Jesus because he acted just like everybody. They flocked to Jesus because they saw the holiness of God in him. Right? And as Christ has manifested through us, that should be the appeal, not, you know, who, you know, who would make a sailor blush with their language. You know, jump back a chapter in Ephesians. I always run every, I try to run th- everything I say by this verse and I often fail, but I'm trying to do better. As Ephesians 4.29, Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So not only should I be watching what I say, but who I say it to and when I say it. Husbands take note of that, especially. Yeah. You can say the right thing at the totally wrong time. <laughs> That's true with other people too. Yeah. Not only is this right to say, is this the right time for it? Is this the right time to say it? And and do we have to really look to our coworkers to determine our character or manner of speech? Um, we do not. We have the Word of God, um, and and we should be able to figure out how we should be speaking. Okay, uh, the next question. It's a long one. Psalms are psalmist praises and often supplications too. They are not necessarily God's promises. How shall we then treat those supplications? For example, um, in Psalm uh, 623, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Is this true for us? Uh, For example, in uh, Psalm 90, verse 15, make us glad uh, for as many as, for many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. Does this prayer being included in the Bible mean approval of this supplication by God? Can we make the same supplication? Yes. Um, and I think this is ultimately, this is a question of inspiration, right? And, and the place of the Psalms. Psalms are unique, though, because where the Bible is written, um, you know, sort of from God's perspective to man, Psalms are inspired but they're all written from, you know, man speaking to God, so to speak. Their prayers and their songs, so they're directed towards God. But, but they're still inspired because so much prophecy comes from Psalms, right? Look at Psalm two. Look at Psalm twenty-two. Um, but one of the biggest ones, what is it? Uh, Psalm uh, sixteen talks about the the resurrection of the Messiah. So there's a lot of deep, not only doctrine but Christ-specific prophecy that comes from the Psalms that tell us 
that they are divinely inspired. So yeah, all of these principles, absolutely. Should we be praying the Psalms and praying through the Psalms? Oh, for sure. We should be taking the principles from the Psalms and incorporating them into our prayer life. But um, none of these things are like, obviously like, um, just like blank checks that God wrote. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Is that ultimately going to be true? Yes. That doesn't mean that if I pray that I'm guaranteed to not have a bad day until I get to heaven. So um, ultimately, these are true things, but um, they, they uh, yeah, inspired and profitable. So what do you guys think? Well, I think Psalms are really important to teach us how to pray, especially. And there's sometimes where you don't know what to pray. Has it ever happened to anybody else besides me? You're just like, I don't know what to pray. Go to the Psalms. Find one that expresses how you're feeling, and that could be your prayer to God. And, and that verse uh, in particular, surely goodness and mercy uh, shall follow me. Um, if Even if it doesn't seem like it, if we looked hard enough, uh, we, would, we would see God's mercy and goodness following us. Right. All right, let's move on to the next one. If Jesus was a Galilean Jew, why aren't we? You know, I had to ask for clarification for this question, and the question primarily boils down to, um, as I understood the clarification, is if Jesus was an obedient Jew, like, you know, according to Mosaic law and such, why don't we have to uh, subject ourselves to Mosaic law? And that is a really huge question that, again, we'll try to answer succinctly. But the, the Old Testament law was given to Israel for a certain period of history, right? And the purpose of the law was a couple of things. It was to show us that we're all sinners and to ultimately bring us um, our need for God's grace. And it also um, pointed to the Messiah through the sacrificial system, you know, the sacrifices, the high priest, the temple, the holy of holies, all of that. So the Old Testament law, God instituted um, for a season and for the nation of Israel. But Christ came to fulfill all of that, right? So, um, you know, in Hebrews says that um, the Old Covenant is obsolete because God established a new covenant. And even in the Old Covenant, um, God promised that he was going to establish a new one. Right and Jeremiah like thirty one he says I'm going to I'm going to write a uh, establish a new covenant and that new covenant was ultimately um, set into motion for the death of Jesus Christ he established the new covenant so we don't live according to Old Testament law we live under the covenant of um, His grace through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit which wasn't part of um, the uh, believer's life under the Old Testament. All right. Sounds good, Jeff. Thank you. Are there spirits outside of angels and demons on on earth? Is there any scripture that would lead us to believe that people, once they die, would be a spirit on earth? No. Taylor, you want to add anything to that? No, there, that's a yes or no question. Is there any scripture that would have us believe that people die and are still hovering around? Him? There's nothing scripturally that says that. Ghostbusters was just a movie. <laughs> yeah, well, it wasn't a documentary. Well, I think we talked about this where a lot of people say, I feel like my loved one is still here. The Bible is very clear that once you die, your spirit goes to one place or the other. 
Now, the Bible has verses about people watching what's going on, but truly being with us, that's not a biblical concept. Right. And I think there's, look, we've all lost people that we care about, so I'm not making light of that. But I think there's something in us that wants to think, Grandma's with me right now. And biblically, she's really not, right? We die, we go somewhere. And... um the Bible makes that clear. I don't believe, you know, some people say, well, when a, when a cardinal visits you, that's the spirit of your deceased loved one coming to you as a cardinal or whatever. I just, look, that's, that's just not biblical, right? And if the loved one is a follower of Christ, we know there will be a reunion someday. Right. So we'll yeah. see them again. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. If they're, yeah, so you've got something better than, you know, showing up as a bird on my porch. Um, we'll get to be with them eternally in the place that Jesus is preparing. But yeah, there's no scripture that says people are hanging out here. All right, thank you. Uh, next question, are we missing something when it comes to the Sabbath and the value of rest? Jesus addresses the Pharisees' legalistic approach to the Sabbath, and much of the Old Testament has been fulfilled through the cross. But this is the only one of Ten Commandments that isn't expected to be followed still. Right. Um, yeah, Sabbath trips people up because it was part of the Old Testament law. Yes, and we just talked about the purpose of the law for the season for Israel. Now we live under the New Covenant. We're Gentiles. We were never really under the law um, because of who we are and where we live in history. But um, Hebrews chapter 4 actually talks a lot about um, how we live in the Sabbath rest of Jesus Christ. But Taylor, I know you had some great thoughts. We were talking about this stuff through the week, and um, I'd like you to share some of the stuff you um, were talking about with me regarding the Sabbath. Yeah, well, the interesting thing is, of all the Ten Commandments, there's only one that's not re- reinstated as binding upon us as Christians to follow and obey, not to be saved, but since we are saved, we want to obey, the, we want to obey God's commands, and that's keeping the Sabbath. Right. Now, I don't think that means that we should just totally ignore it or brush over it. God took a day of rest in creation, not because he needed it, but to show us how life works best. We aren't meant to be the energizer bunny, just keep going and going and going. We need rest. And Jesus says that Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. I remember at Geneva, when I went to college, we weren't allowed to vacuum or do our laundry on Sunday. And they would even... They would even hire non-Christians to work in the cafeteria because they don't want Christians to break the law. Oh, oh that's like, okay. Well, well that's, I don't want to pay a Christian to break God's commands for me. But anyway, we can be too legalistic about it. But it's a good principle to follow. Just imagine if your work said you get three weeks vacation this year. Eh, I don't think so. You can have those back. God's saying, I want you to take a day to reconnect with me, to recharge, to be with your family. Eh, no thanks, God. I don't want that. It's a gift. It's a blessing from God. Now, I don't want you to be legalistic. I can't cut my grass, can't do this. It's supposed to be a day of rest, not a day of rules. So it's a blessing. You don't have to do it, but I encourage you to find a day. Maybe it's not Sunday. For for Jeff and I, Sunday is not a day of rest. So I try to find another day of the week where I can... It's the one day a week that we work. That could be a whole other sermon, I guess. (laughs) The one one hour of the day. I've I've said I don't work the whole day. (laughs) Right. That's a misnomer. I do not work the whole day. Well, I think there's a verse in um, Matthew 11 that kind of helps us in this too. Uh, the, the passage that says, where Jesus says, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you. Yeah, and, you know, 
and you see that on greeting cards and all that stuff. And, and um, I think the verse is often taken out of context because we think, oh, I'm so tired. I need, I need to have a rest. And yeah, we do. We need to have a rest as, as we've talked about. Um, but in, in this particular passage, the context is that the, the people were striving and laboring and trying to get salvation. And Jesus has said, stop the striving and, and all that stuff. Come to me. Because you're wearing yourself out trying to come to me on your own. And so I, I think that, that passage helps us to know like why that isn't reinstated in the New Testament. It's like Jesus Christ is our rest, and we need to lean upon him and rest upon him for our salvation and stop the striving and st- stop the, uh, the, the, the clawing and scratching and, and all that stuff for, for, for your salvation because you don't need to do that. Christ did that for you. Right. And that, that was it. Yeah, it was this idea that I have to earn my salvation. And Christ says, no. You take, take my yoke upon you. He's doing the heavy lifting there, right? And, um, but like Taylor said, though, it's a good principle because uh, we just talked about this uh, very recently in Ecclesiastes. Remember the guy that was just like, work all the time, work all the time, and he never stops and asks himself, who am I working for? Why am I killing myself? And remember Solomon gives the little proverb, he's like, better to have a, a hand of quietness than two handfuls of toil. Um, but yeah, it's a great principle because for some people, yeah, it's just, you know, no time for family, no time for relaxing, you know, no time for rest or golf or anything. It's just like, got to be at work every day, all day. And and um, God says, that's not that's not how you're designed. Yeah, and um, we had a similar question uh, in last year's July Q&A. Uh, that I actually wrote uh, a thing up on the blog. So if, if you want more details on this, uh, check out the website and go to the blog and back up through several entries back to last July, and you can, and you can read about that. That's a great question, though. Great question. These are all good questions. They're always great questions. Amazing. Uh, all right. Does Nicodemus believe that Jesus is who he says he is? I believe that ultimately he did. And interestingly, when we went through John, um, we covered this because um, when you get to John 19, okay, here Jesus had offered himself as a sacrifice and um, died, and um, they uh, asked for his body so they could bury him. And it says, Nicodemus also, who earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And we talked about this, but you um, can trace Nicodemus' story throughout John. You see him in John chapter 3. He's like, you know, that, that's the whole, you must be born again. He's, how, do you, how do you get born once you're outside the womb kind of thing? And Jesus explained that to him. The next time you see uh, Nicodemus in John, um, remember he was challenging the other uh, Pharisees, the members of the council, because they're ready to condemn Jesus. And he's like, does our law condemn someone without hearing him out first? So you see him start to, you know, start to change. And then by the time you get to John 19, okay, Jesus crucified, his disciples scatter, everybody except John, his mother, and some women. But everybody abandons Jesus. And who shows up? Like these two basic unknowns as far as discipleship goes. It was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And I talked about that, uh, them 
in that message. I do think that Nicodemus, by um, just the fruit of of uh, what you see in his life, his growth over time, and John, I think he, I think he did become a believer. Yeah, I, I believe that too, based on that exact same verse. Um, how about Genesis three? We'll jump back to Genesis. Is that all right? Uh, it makes mention of uh, Satan's offspring. Did Satan uh, procreate with humans? Who was Satan's offspring? Satan did not procreate with humans. However, Satan does have children. What is it, John 8.44? Is that the reference? Where, um, yeah, Jesus said, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So, yeah, Satan doesn't have children the natural way, <laughs> he, but he, um, he does have children, right? Because Jesus said people who... Um, want to do the things that Satan does, murder, you know, lie, steal, uh, steal kill, destroy. Um, people that do that show that uh, Satan is their father, not God. And you only have one of two fathers, right? You're in one of two camps. And I think we think there's like the really good people that are like in God's camp, and then there's the really bad people in Satan's camp, and most people are in this sort of orphan camp, and that's not biblical either. You're either God's your father or the devil's your father. It's who are you serving? All right. What I love this question. What do you think is the strongest evidence outside of the Bible that Jesus of Nazareth is a historical existence? Yeah, this is a really good question. And I I thought a lot about this. To me, the strongest evidence outside of the Bible is this church. Seeing the love of Christ manifested through you. When I hear how people in this church have been ministering to Don Saber over these past few months, awesome. And when I see anytime somebody in this church is down and out, I see people rallying around to encourage and pray for them, lift them up. Um, I just see the love of Christ so obviously and tangibly manifested in this church. So I would say outside of the Bible... That, to me, is the strongest evidence of the presence of Jesus Christ. If we have to go outside of the Bible. Yeah, there's a lot of historians and writers back during that time that wrote about Jesus. So maybe you come across people who say, I don't know if Jesus actually existed. There's not many credible historians who would ever say that. It's not a matter of if Jesus existed. The question you have to answer is, who do I think that he is? Right. We know that he lived. We know that he died. Do I believe that he resurrected from the grave or not? That question changes everything about who you are as a person. And something else that I think is really strong evidence is we know all the 12 disciples, besides Judas for obvious reasons, and John, they were martyred and murdered for their faith in Jesus Christ. Why would they do that for someone who never existed? Or for someone they knew was dead and never came back? Right. Absolutely. Maybe one of them, maybe two of them, but all of them, that's just too much. We know from, we know from history that these men were all murdered for their faith in Christ. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, you can check that stuff out, like with a historian type thing. I was looking into Josephus, uh, who was a historian who was born in AD 37 and lived to about 100 AD. And, um, and he wrote about Jesus. And in fact, has a lot more information about Jesus, uh, that, that, that is not recorded in the Bible. Um, you know, and it's not inspired stuff, obviously. Um, but he was a historian. 
and he was he was well regarded and well revered and 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 so if if he was writing about this figure back then would have easily been discredited by all the people around him like oh you're a fool that guy never existed but he wasn't discredited and his works uh, survive to this day yeah the argument like i don't think jesus ever existed that's like saying i don't think george washington existed just because i don't happen to live in the same period of history when the person walked the earth you know it's yeah we have even outside of God's word, we have historians that attest to the fact that a man named Jesus lived on the earth. But like Taylor said, the question isn't did he live? The question is the same one he asked, you know, uh, the disciples in Matthew 16. Who do you say that I am? All right, next question. In Daniel chapter 10, at the very end of the chapter, it says, But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except these, I'm sorry, against these except Michael, your prince. Why is Michael called a prince? And are there other angels known as princes like Michael? I do not know of any other angels referred to that way. Michael obviously was one of, if not the head angel. He comes up in uh, Jude. He comes up in uh, Revelation. uh, And obviously here in Daniel, he seems like he was one of the one of the top angels of the Lord. I think that's why he's called the prince. But I don't know of anywhere else in the Bible that angels are referred to that way. So I just I think it speaks to his rank among the angels, is my short answer there. And we are going with short answers. We are going with short answers. When do the Old Testament saints get their glorified bodies? If it is not at the time of the rapture, when the dead rise first, can you explain? I believe it is at the time of the rapture. You know, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, we did a series on that. What was that, last year? Um, we talked about um, the dead in Christ will rise first. That In that time, I believe that all believers... Um, well, that's our time. Your love. Stop playing Pac-Man on stage. <laughs> Just in time. I, I, I didn't know where I was going with that answer. All right. Thanks, everybody. Um, now, I believe that at the rapture is when we, you know, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. You know, in the twinkling of an eye, we talked about that. You know, in the speed of time, quicker than it takes light to get through your eye. Quicker than that, um, we will uh, receive our glorified body, but the dead in Christ will rise first. And I believe that that includes Old Testament saints. We talked about that before. You're like, well, are Old Testament saints Christians? Well, our faith is based on looking back in history at what God did in the past. The cross, the empty tomb. In the Old Testament, their faith was based on trusting what God was going to do. Right? They knew God was going to send someone who was going to take their sin away. So um, in that sense, those who truly believed in the Old Testament, they were Christians because they believed in what God was going to do through Messiah. So it's kind of a, a timeline thing. But yeah, I believe that's when the Old Testament saints um, receive their glorified bodies. All right. And I'm going to do you a big favor. I'm going to keep you from having the blog because we have one more question and then we're done. Do you want to do one more? Or should we? Okay. All right. Oh, yeah. that, that'll save Taylor from blogging. It. All right. I, was gonna, I was going to have him do it. All right. And we're going with short answer. 
Last question, why does the Lord send Saul an evil spirit several times in 1 Samuel? Why would the Lord do that? We are told to resist the devil and he will flee. That's a question a with really, a hard, short answer. <laughs> that is a really good question. I, ha- I have your notes if you want them. Oh, you, you know what? That's what I'm looking at here. The reason I'm looking at my notes here is because this, this question bothered me so much many years ago. I did this whole study, pages and pages long. I mean, just pages long. I'm going to read the whole thing to you now. Um, not the whole thing. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, if you'll indulge me here, I'm going to read part of it because I was trying to be very careful in the way that I worded this. And um, this was the answer that I put when I did this uh, study um, many, many, many years ago. In what sense was the evil spirit from the Lord? Um, I believe that God did not force a demon upon Saul. In fact, the text doesn't say that Saul became demon-possessed, only that an evil spirit troubled him, meaning afflicted him externally. But in his sovereignty, God permitted the evil spirit to afflict Saul. And Hebrew language commonly uses such figures of speech. That is, it's from the Lord, means uh, God allowed it to happen in his sovereignty. That's the short answer. I, could, I have like three more paragraphs. Four? Four more paragraphs. All right, that's the short answer. Um, and I can send whoever is interested in this, I can send you the whole study. But the rest of it goes on to talk about the fact that, you know, when somebody um, refuses to honor God, you're opening yourself up to evil spiritual affliction. And that's even New Testament, right? Like um, Acts um, chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira... Lying, you know that story, they, they were lying about what they gave and God struck them dead, but nobody forgot that church service. But it was like from the devil, right? They, they said, why, why, did, why did Satan get you to lie like this? So again, because they dishonored God, they were open to um, influence from the, the, from the work of the devil himself. And we can trace that through, you know, um, 1 Corinthians 5, the guy that was committing adultery with his uh, stepmom, Paul says, cast him out of the church for what purpose? For the destruction of the flesh. He says, hand him over to Satan. So when you flat out refuse to um, get on board with what God's doing, you're opening yourself up to some bad spiritual stuff. And I think that's what happened with Saul. Taylor, what would you want to add to that? Whether you see in the book of Exodus that Pharaoh hardened his heart, against God and says God also hardened Pharaoh's heart. And we think, well, wait, does that mean God put evil in Pharaoh's heart? He put him down the wrong path? No. God is light in him. There's no darkness at all. God doesn't need to put evil in our hearts. It's already there. <laughs> right. yeah. So he yeah, lifts his restraining hand. So it's not an active hardening of someone's heart or Pharaoh's heart. It's a lifting his hand. It's a passive hardening. So it's similar with something like this as well. Right. Right. And it's not like, well, Saul was afflicted by his spirit and it was unbeknownst to the Lord that this happened. I mean, obviously not, right? And so, again, in the Hebrew mindset, it was to say that God permitted it was the same as saying, yeah, that was from God. So, um, again, there's so much more I, I could share about that. But, um, again, there, there, we're going for the short answer. I think that sufficiently answered this question. And I'm told um, we're having a party for Taylor right now. There's, there's cake. Is there a piñata?
There could be. All right. Does it so, have my face on it? Well. That'd be awkward. What we should do is kind of like hang Taylor up and everybody beat him with a stick and see if candy comes out. Because that's what being a pastor feels like sometimes. <laughs> true or false? Oh, it's true. All right. So, Taylor, would you please, uh, as the worship team makes their way forward, thank you, everybody, for your questions. And we went a little OT here, which happens quite a bit. But um, we appreciated everybody's questions they submitted. hope we got to all of them and none of them slipped through the cracks or whatever. But uh, we're going to close in worship, and I'm going to ask Pastor Taylor if he close our time here with prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much that you tell us who you are. You tell us who we are, and you tell us how you expect us to live this life, Lord. So many people are walking around right now not knowing what life is about. They have no idea who you are and what they're even doing here. Lord, we have this awesome purpose, this awesome mission that you've given us to grow closer to you, to become more like Christ and invite people to this awesome party, this awesome experience of knowing you and being with you forever. Lord, we thank you so much for this time. I pray we'd all continue to grow in our love and our knowledge of you. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Pastor Jeff Miller, and I would like to thank you again for listening to the podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel, Pittsburgh North. And you know, a question that I get asked frequently from people is this, how can I support your ministry? Well, I got good news for you. It is easy, and it is secure. All you have to do is go to harvestpittsburghnorth.org backslash giving and follow the on-screen directions, and you can give online to support the ministry of Harvest Pittsburgh North. So until next time, this is Pastor Jeff Miller saying thank you again for listening to the podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel, Pittsburgh North.